Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. I have my supervisor, Simona Schnell, with us, uh, who's a professor at the University of Cambridge, where I'm a PhD student. So it's going to be a really exciting episode. Thanks, Ikim. Thanks, Katrina, for having me. It's really Great fun to be with you today. Um, looking, really looking forward to it. So I'm, yeah, I'm an experimental social psychologist at the University of Cambridge, and I get to work with really exciting, really bright students, such as Ikim and other people in my lab. That's awesome. Yeah, we're very excited to have you on the podcast today and to learn more about your career trajectory as well as your research um, interests and what you've been working on. So first, can you just tell us how you became involved in research? Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Just by accident, to be perfectly oh. honest. I never planned to get into research, much less academia. Uh, it just so happened that um, I went, so after, after my first three years of undergrad, this was in Germany at the University of Trier, I went on a one-year exchange to the US and then, but then I, I got there, I got really interested in research. I thought, you know what, I wanna do more of that. In fact, I'm gonna do a PhD. I'm gonna stick around for a little longer. And before you know it, I was in the US for 10 years. I had done the PhD, the postdoc, everything. And well, yeah, I haven't been back in Germany since then. Afterwards, I went to the UK where I've now been for quite some time. So yeah, I just stumbled into it, literally. I, I never planned on it, but it, it, you know, it was good fun. And I thought, you know what, let me keep doing this as long as it's fun and as long as it works out reasonably well career-wise. That's incredible. I mean, and I've heard so many people have said the similar things where it's been an accident that they sort of fall into research right. or they, yeah. yeah, they meet a professor who they are interested in um, their work. And so they decide to join the lab and then it just spirals from there. So that's very interesting. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so what encouraged you to pursue a career in academia? Uh, again, it was, well, just like I stumbled into it, I kept, you know, stumbling along, bumbling along and thought, you know, this is good fun. I'll just, I, I knew it was difficult to, to get an academic job. So, so I had a very simple strategy was to say that, okay, let me see how far I get. I'm just going to continue and I'll, I'll see how far I get. If at some point this whole thing is not going to work out for whatever reason, or if I don't enjoy it anymore, then I look for something else. But until then, I'm going to throw myself into it 100% and yeah, see, see what happens. Uh, so, so yeah, again, not, not all entirely planned, but I just kept going and, you know, all worked out reasonably well. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, and yeah. you mentioned there are some tough parts about that journey. Could you elaborate a bit more on what was the toughest part about going into academia or being an academic in general? Uh, I think there's a real, it's, it's an interesting combination of, of the tough parts being the same as the great parts where- Interesting. Uh, you know, you have all the freedom in terms of picking a research topic, research question, but that actually turns out to be really difficult to narrow it down to something that's manageable, that can be tested easily and so on. So, so that's, it's very exciting, but at the same time also really surprisingly hard. And also along the lines of freedom, we have so much freedom and principle in terms of 
you know, work patterns, um, when to work, how much to work, all of that, which is fantastic. But then at the same time, you can also end up just working all the time or feeling, or at least feeling like you should be working all the time. So I think as academics, the best parts and the worst parts are really close to each other, but certainly I would think the best parts by far outweigh the other parts, simply because having, and I think there's plenty of research to having control over your, um, you know, the kind of work you do, having, being able to make choices of what you want to study and nobody really telling you, I mean, in, in well, of course, there are some responsibilities. I have to do certain things, you know, like teaching and supervising students and not neglecting them, those kinds of things. But, but, but yeah, overall, in terms of the choice we have over research topics and the kind of general direction we want to go in, that's, that's pretty amazing, actually. That's pretty awesome. Um, so how would you balance that work-life uh, balance? Like what, how do you do, you, how do you compartmentalize your life so that it stays in balance? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm very good at that, to be honest. Uh, well, yeah, it's, I, I often aspire to, to draw clean lines and say, okay, after a certain time in the evening, I don't check email or not on the, on the weekends and so on. I don't, I don't seem to manage that. Uh, I, for some time, I remember setting aside Saturdays entirely and not checking emails or not doing anything. I've, I've kind of been doing that, not well, not always very successfully, but, but yeah, I will say that is a challenge. I, I, I couldn't say that I, I figured out how to do it. And in fact, I think, again, that relates to work patterns and so on, what, what's, how to best, how to be most efficient, most productive, still have a regular life, uh, you know, uh, life outside of work and so on, which, which, is, which is a challenge. But I remember when I was a postdoc, uh, uh, I, uh, at some point, uh, Tim Wilson, who was, um, this was at the University of Virginia, and I remember he saying at some point, and I should say, he, of course, is very famous, very well-respected, and just, I mean, has done amazing work. And he at some point said, yeah, you know, as academics, as an academic, you always try to find uh, the best way of working or how to be most productive and how to, you know, how to structure your day and all of that. And I thought, that's unbelievable that even Tim Wilson <laughs> is still thinking about these things, you know, and uh, so that gets back to these challenges and opportunities as academics. You could do anything at any point, which is great, but at the same time, then it's, it's sometimes difficult to set boundaries. But I do know, now I know Tim Wilson's secret is to, uh, to, to basically block the morning out for writing and difficult tasks. Then he goes to the gym and then afternoons he has meetings. So I, I, I do the, the meetings in the afternoon part. I do the, the mornings, the more difficult writing part. I haven't managed to go to the gym around, around <laughs> lunchtime. So still aspiring to that at some point. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think even with the pandemic now, it's that line of having the work-life balance has been even more blurred because all of your work yeah. now is at home and it's hard That's to right. separate. Yeah. yeah Apparently, there have been studies to show that people now work much more and where, you know, employers used to be concerned that, oh, if people work from home, who knows what they'll be doing? They probably don't don't do much and just take time off. Turns out it's the opposite. Although I suppose the confound here is that 
we don't have many other options, right, in terms of what else we could be doing since we're not meant to leave the house. And once mm. you are stuck at home, well, you're likely to sit in front of the screen. So maybe it's really a function of the pandemic rather than of working from home. Right. But yeah, I think it's true. Anyone, mm. anyone who can work from a computer will have that that challenge of how to how to structure your workday. Because like like you said, it, a lot of people have found that they're more productive at home, but then also the ability of going into work and um, having meetings maybe in person if they're able to concentrate yes. would be That's a right. nice option. So so how do you structure your day? You guys, what, what do you do? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, try, I try to fix my schedule so that I'm like working from a nine to five just because it's easy for me to remember. But mm-hmm. I, realistically, I, I think I'm actually most productive if I put in like four to six hours per day instead of eight hours, because then I'm most concentrated and I actually yes. most of my work done during like that four to six hour window. So I try to do like two to three hours during the morning and then two to three hours in the afternoon. And then I just watch TV at night. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's a good thing. I think yeah. it's really important to switch off one way or another. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And I think as a student, I remember being an undergrad, uh, working like late at the, in the nights and uh, not having really that balance of, of working and, and when life should be. Uh, but having graduated now, I realize that it's important to make sure that that night is kept open for your for your free time so that you're not yes. having to worry about work <laughs> constantly. And there are some people who are more right. night owls yes. um, and they've right. been working. Right. Work. Yeah. So it's very interesting to <laughs> see how it's going to work out with grad school now next year. Yeah, but, how often do you actually go to the labs now every week? Um, so I actually go pretty consistently if I have to be there in person. Um, it's probably three times a week that I go in and then I'm able to come back and do some work from home and then turn everything off and then <laughs> relax. So um, right. it's nice. Yeah, I think it's good to have a routine, you yes. know, and have some, have some hours or some like an hourly schedule because it's easier if you if you measure hours those are easy to quantify, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to progress exactly. on, a or on a project. I mean, okay, what does that even mean, right? What's what's considered progress? So I think, yeah, once you put in the hours, you can tick, you can say, okay, I, I can, I objectively work those hours. There's no question about it. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. That's so true. And yeah, you can't measure productivity either. So I mean, just at the time that you can yes, work and right. then try to do as much work in that time as possible and then afterwards shut off yes. yeah exactly. yeah it's one thing to say it now let's see if we can stick to it in the future that's right that's right work in theory yes in theory um so then is there anything that you wish you had known as an early career researcher uh, well let's see i i will say and I don't think it's especially novel, but it's worth emphasizing uh, is that publications really are the most important thing. And again, I'm sure everybody knows about it, but then at the same time, they can can be all kinds of, you can get pulled in all kinds of directions with opportunities and this and that. And there'll be other things too that can be useful or that will good, look good on a CV. For example, conference presentations. I mean, they're they're important on one hand, but at the same time, a conference presentation comes nowhere near in significance of a paper, right? So 
so or, or other things and or teaching experience yes that's that's great on one hand but at the same time that's not going to get you the job most likely so it's really basically the publications really need to be the top priority and then everything else is extra um so you know i, I think again that's that's probably something that most students know but it just it's really worth saying okay if whatever you do is it gonna help me to get a paper and i should say i mean it's not that everything is about just getting papers and publishing and just thinking about that but but at least in a way it's worth keeping that in mind as a goal rather than necessarily filling up with your cv with all kinds of other things which all can be useful but but they, they they're not going to get as much weight as that and but what's also important is that even though that's kind of the goal there is so much unpredictability with that because of course you can do really amazing work but then it may not get accepted at a journal in fact it may not get accepted at the next journal and the next one and so on so it can be you know a really difficult process but at the same time well, you make it the priority, whether the world necessarily recognizes it, that's not something you have control over. But but starting from what you can do, that's, you know, that's certainly something to, to prioritize as much as possible. And so prioritize in terms of the work you put in, not necessarily of what comes out of it, because, yeah, that's not all within your control. Right, exactly. So would you say that it's best to keep on a straight path then in your career of academia and like focus on the most important things and things that might have the most impact and then also pick up a few extra things on the side if you have the time and the capacity yes that's right and i think that's both in terms of keeping the, the publications and the papers kind of to be the main focus but then also have a certain research theme or, or topic that's really your thing rather than trying too many different things right so, right. so kind of building up a research program so 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 some you know some topic of expertise of of, of interest that that is yours and that most likely no one else would have done before and you really carve it out for yourself so you can be working on different projects and be doing different things but they should ideally hang together right to form a certain theme right to have that niche yes exactly that's right that's right so yeah at the end i guess that means focus on on some level really focus on on the on those important things rather than getting sidetracked with others yeah um do you think academia has changed since you were a phd student and in what ways well okay <laughs> well okay now i'm you know dating myself i guess or revealing just how old i remember <laughs> I, when I, so when I, as I mentioned, I went to the US for an exchange year. And while I was there, that's when email started to become popular. So I remember, I, in fact, when I went, I had a little notebook where entitled correspondence, simply because I like to record everything. I recorded when I sent letters to friends at home and when I received some from them, because I was in the US, you know, having come from Germany. So I had that notebook where I recorded when I wrote letters and received letters as an actual paper letters. And then at some point that kind of dwindled away. And of course, soon enough, I, I stopped 
adding entries into that notebook because I wasn't writing actual letters anymore. So, you know, all moved into, into email. So, so that's just talking email, internet. I remember using Netscape or what was it called? Net, Netscape Explorer, I forget. It's one of these early internet browsers. So that's just to say, I mean, back in the days we did not have access to all that information. I mean, it was just, just incomparable. Uh, and but at the same time, that also meant fewer distractions. In fact, you know, imagine not having any email. Or in fact, we had a couple of computers in the department where, as students, we could check email for a long time. I didn't have any any computer at home. Actually, not for a long time, for 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 a short while. But but yeah, we did all the work in the department, and then that that was an easy way for a work life balance. What was it like to do literature review during that time? Did you have to go to the yeah. library and like yes, just exactly to books? Right. You go to the library. You do the psych. What was it called? It the psych. Inf- I guess it wasn't called psych info. It was called something else. But yeah, that whole thing. And then if they didn't have it, so so then you would go to the to the stacks and make photocopies of the journals and mm-hmm. uh, the journal pages. And then if they didn't have it go to the librarian, fill out a yellow form and say it did interlibrary loan. So they would then request it from another library. It, it sounds unbelievable now, actually, that that's how it was. <laughs> but, but that's how it was. And of course, also keep in mind, because uh, because of all this, there was also less literature, right? Fewer, fewer journals and so on, because it costs money to publish a paper paper copy of a journal. Now we have many online journals that are much cheaper to produce because it's all online. So, so that means back in the days, it was really cumbersome to do the literature research, but there was probably also much less literature out there right. compared to now, right? Yeah. Because, because there weren't as many journals, there weren't as many things going on. And also because the research process was more, um, was I guess slower, people wouldn't be publishing as much or they, you know, you couldn't really be doing as much as people do now. For example, of course, in, in our line of work, online studies, right, that that wasn't possible. So everything had to be a lab study and all of that. So, so yeah, I guess things have accelerated quite a bit in terms of the pace and the information of information, uh, the amount of information that's that's out there and that we, we need to keep track of. Would you yeah. say that like the quality of studies, because just because we have so many publications these days, would you say that overall that information explosion has been of lower quality than before? Hmm, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't think so, because if you think of um, kind of just the practicalities and, you know, before my time, I mean, way back in the, I guess, 50s, 60s or whenever people wrote papers, they would, they would type it with a typewriter, right? Or they would, everything would be sent by mail and so on. So, so everything would, would be more work as far as the practicalities are concerned, but that wouldn't change the quality of the work. Right now, everybody can use a word processor. Everybody can send things around by email and download it, whatever they need. So that doesn't make it any worse. That just makes it easier. But mm. but it is true that that it's harder to to get a good sense of a research area simply because there is so much. So I think it can be 
can be almost a bit discouraging to think that, okay, I'm going to do a literature review and then you start and then you just get down this rabbit hole and there's just so much where it's difficult to to get a good sense of what's relevant and, and all of that. And mm -hmm. also, I mean, with so many journals now out there, um, it is probably easier to publish something where back in the days that just weren't that many options. But mm -hmm. then it, it's probably also worth thinking, is it actually worth, it, it, I suppose it depends. Uh, is it worth targeting a top journal and getting a, a top publication there? Or, well, first of all, I think that's always worth doing and that's probably where one should start. Uh, and then how far down will you go if you keep getting rejected and are you at some point going to pull the plug and say, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to sink more time into it. Or are you going to go to a third tier journal and mm -hmm. just, you know, to place it somewhere? It depends. It depends what the finding is. It depends how keen you are to, to get it out there, no matter what. It depends on what else you have going on. You know, if you have other more exciting projects going on that may be more, maybe higher impact, then maybe, maybe at some point it is, you know, it's, it's worth thinking, okay, what's, what's the best time spent on, on various projects? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm thinking back when you were starting your career, did you feel like it was less competitive than it is now because there weren't so many people maybe doing the research that you could and this research process was slower and people weren't as aware of what other people were doing? I think it was the last one. Okay. That, that yeah. It felt less competitive simply because you, because all these other people weren't constantly in your face. Right. On Twitter know, where and everything. Were, <laughs> where, I mean, now, for example, all, so if you sign up to the journal uh, table of contents updates, you get all of those. So you see all these papers that are coming out. Then if you're on Twitter, you see all the things that people are publishing. Yep. And wherever you look, it feels like, okay, there's all these people doing all these amazing things. And that, you know, that creates a sense of being, all being very competitive. I'm sure it was always like that, right? Because I don't think, in fact, if you think about it, I, I don't think departments have in any way increased the numbers of, page, of graduate students. I don't know how they could how they could have. So probably objectively speaking, there's just this many, and I suppose that's one of the main things. If there are just as many students, the competition would be just the same. And if everybody now has an easier time to locate information online and do all the things we now do, that's, that's what everybody else is doing too, right? So in a way, uh, objectively probably hasn't changed simply because it's not more people, it's not, probably not fewer jobs, I imagine, or at least, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the numbers, but but certainly I couldn't imagine that there would be more students now, basically more competitors now, because I don't know where they would be funded if they weren't there to begin with. Right, yeah, I think that maybe the competitive net, competitiveness now has increased in terms of more people wanting to enter this arena. And like you said, there aren't they didn't increase the spaces, so it's just becoming more and more difficult to enter. But um, I'm not sure. I, I don't think, I, I think it's always been the case that if you get a PhD, kind of the assumption, not assumption, but for many people, the goal is to, to get, go into academia, then they may realize through the, uh, through the program that, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not sure where they really want this or 
for whatever reason they may not pursue it but i think i think even i don't know 20 30 40 50 years ago people would go down that path probably had in mind getting into academia and then either did or didn't so i don't think there would be more i i don't know but i would be surprised if there would be more people wanting to go into academia now as opposed to what's always been the case if you decide to enter a graduate program oh it's interesting yeah. I wonder if um, it was also as common for people to apply several times, because I was quite surprised because um, we had a previous episode with someone who has applied several times and we learned about how competitive, especially the cycle and also previous cycles have been. And, you know, there are people who have been applying like three, four times and still not getting into a psychology PhD program. Um, right, right. I, 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 I was not aware that this was the case. Yes. I, yeah, I, I don't know either, but the, the question is how many of those people are there, right? I mean, sure, there can be some people like that, but how many people, I mean, do I know people in Cambridge who, who would have done that? I, I, I certainly can't think of anyone from the top of my head. So uh, it may happen, but I don't think it's, it's, it's very common, but, but I could be wrong. So I think it's, it's important to keep you know, to think about, okay, what what's the average experience or the, the kind of what most people go through or the experience they have, as opposed to are there a couple of people who would have applied so many times? I don't know, maybe, maybe, yeah, I, I, I don't have the numbers handy, mm. uh, but, but I do think it's always been competitive. It's competitive now, but I think it's just that everyone is more aware of the competitors because you always hear yeah. about that didn't used to be the case mm -hmm. i know i also feel like psychology as a field has become a lot more popular in recent years i don't i don't know about other fields having like more phd applicants but i feel like in psychology maybe there is a trend that more people are applying or anything undergrad it's like that's a good question yeah that's a good question i yeah i don't know the number certainly as an undergraduate degree psychology has been popular for a really long time mm -hmm. i mean everybody mm -hmm. wants to study psychology and then graduate programs that's actually a good question i don't know to what extent that might have gone up but yeah i definitely know that uh this year especially a lot of people on twitter were posting that there was a huge increase in the applications from previous years and that's probably because of the pandemic and mm -hmm. um people not having maybe as many job prospects and wanting to go into the grad uh, field. Yes, you yeah. know, that is actually, that is actually probably something that has been established because I remember this was when I had just joined Cambridge and this was right at the time of the, uh, you know, the big um, economic uh, collapse 2009. Right. And we, at that point, we had like two or three times as many applicants for our taught MPhil degrees and um, master's degree. Uh, and we ended up with a really big cohort because typically, so, so one always tries to kind of estimate how many, so one makes a certain number of offers, graduate offers, assuming there's a certain number, certain percentage of people who would then accept, others would not. So you always try to estimate how, what kind of a group you'd end, group size you'd end up with. But, but that year, I mean, we, we applied the same kind of logic, but then most of the students or the applicants who had, were offered a place, they all came. So we ended up with a group that was twice or even three times as big as 
other years, but that was, you know, our interpretation was that, okay, if the economy isn't going well, then many people uh, want to pursue a graduate degree, which is probably a good idea. You know, if there aren't good jobs, uh, it's a good idea to get more training and get more experience and just wait it out a little. Yeah. And it's possible that something similar might, might be going on right now as well. Yeah, and I think definitely as yeah. barriers start to uh, get taken down, then more and more people think, see themselves having access to this and so then the applicants can increase that way too. I'm just curious, what do you think is the responsibilities of uh, psychologists, especially maybe for, for people like me and Katrina who are in the very early stages of our research career, what do you think is our responsibility to, to maybe contribute to that conversation and facilitate positive change? Huh, good question. Well, well, first of all, I think responsibility is a bit of a heavy burden, right? It can sound like a heavy burden where you guys have lots of things, well, on your plate already, right? There's no question about it. You have to do your work, build careers, build your lives, fully grow up, all those kinds of things, right? So so that i'd say that's already you know that's a good that's a pretty heavy load already on some level and then i think it's then good if you also you know try to look out for other people the community what's what's the right thing to do but in a way the real responsibility and the burden should be on well, basically older people or people in, in generations where they're more settled. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. I have a permanent job, you know, I don't have to worry about those kinds of things. So I should bear more of a burden than you guys. I have, I see myself as having more of a responsibility because in a way I can afford it more mm -hmm. than younger people. So I, I think, yeah, I, it's certainly important. And in, in fact, it's often young people, right? they're the drivers of change and they're the rebels and the revolutionaries and they want to turn things around which is great but at the same time it also comes at a high cost for you guys mm. so i think you 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 shouldn't be shouldering those those burdens by yourself and really you know sometimes point the finger at other people and say okay how about you why don't you get involved here yeah that totally makes sense and it's nice to hear someone who is in a higher position of power in some cases uh wanting to take that responsibility themselves and not put it all on the more vulnerable populations who don't have as much power or have as much pull in making yeah. those changes so yeah. although to be fair there's power in numbers right yes with many things whenever it comes to change as long as you get enough people riled up and they all unite there's amazing things one can do and one can overthrow people in power, right? Yep. See yep. many times in history. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's a balance, but I, yeah, I do think, I mean, the way you worded it, what is your responsibility? I, I do think that that really turns it into kind of a personal thing that, oh, you know, pointing the finger, you're supposed to do this. It's your job. And, and I don't think that would be fair. Now we're going to move into the research section. So we have a pretty interesting paper to discuss um, on decision fatigue. Um, Simona, would you briefly tell us what decision fatigue is? Yes, yes. And I should say, so, so you guys asked me to pick a paper. And the reason I picked that one is because it was just uh, accepted a few days ago. 
Congrats. Yeah, thank you. Always nice when it finally, finally happens. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm really excited about it, and I'll I'll tell you more about it in a moment. But I just want to say it's it's just one example of of a lot of different topics I work on, and it it fits in a theme of trying to understand um, the kinds of irrational influences that that sometimes drive our lives uh, when it comes to decisions, behaviors, and the kind of things that we may not necessarily be aware of, and in particular, certain bodily states, how we feel, whether it's emotions, whether it's some other, you know, a sense of being powerful, powerless, having energy versus being fatigued, all the kind of temporary physical states we might be experiencing and how they can actually play a role in how we make judgments, how we perceive things in the world uh, and how we behave. So that's kind of the bigger picture of, of what I'm interested in. And I've, I've explored that in, in all kinds of different ways to different lines of research. And this particular work, this particular line of work is actually it, it grew out of uh, out of um, um, an interest that one of my students had, and it was all very serendipitous, actually. And I should say that's often how it happens, where a student comes with an idea and they say, "Oh, how about this? You know, why don't we do that and that?" And I say, "Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I would have, you know, I I would not have thought of that, but yeah, let's go for it." And that's, you know, speaking of the the best parts of the job, I will say that is probably the best job to have bright students who have great ideas and then you, you jump on it together and say, yeah, you know what, let's, let's do this. And so this was an example where um, I was approached by, uh, so uh, the first author of the paper, Tobias Baer, and he was, at the time he had been working at McKinsey as a partner in the risk management uh, department for over 20 years. And he in fact already had a PhD in economics and then decided, then he came across, you know, uh, the book by, uh, by Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. So the bestseller that so many people have now picked up and realized how great psychology is. And so, so Tobias got very excited about it at the time. And so he got in touch with me and said, okay, would I, you know, would I consider taking him on as, a, as an MPhil student? And I said, yeah, you know what, let's, let's, let's do something. And he had these really interesting interests and because he had been in the credit kind of credit risk industry for you know more than 20 years he had all these connections to the banks and different types access to the kind of data set that one could otherwise never get access to so that's that's kind of the background so so yeah it was all you know really serendipitous and um it, it worked out really well i'm really excited how it how it all came together. But to be honest, we never sat down to say that, okay, well, let's study decision fatigue. It was more of a bit of a, almost a bit of a, um, a kind of bottom-up process to say that, yeah, you know what, we have access to all kinds of data. And here's some really interesting questions we could ask that, that no one else had a chance to ask before. That's incredible. Oh my gosh, I'm glad that it worked out that way and that you were both able to find each other to make this paper. Um, yes. So, so then, yeah, let me tell you a bit about it. So, so decision yeah. fatigue is the idea that after repeated 
decision making. So going through lots and lots of decisions that take a lot of mental energy, it really wears you down. And after a while, your decisions get worse, right? So apparently, and I don't know if that's actually true, but apparently at some point Obama said he always wears the same clothes, or maybe it was, I guess, Obama, perhaps. Steve Jobs would be one, exactly, that's right, these guys. So at some point, apparently they said that, yeah, they always wear the same clothes because then they don't have to make decisions in the morning and that'll free up mental energy and all of that. Who knows whether that's actually true. But that's kind of the idea, right? That if you once you have to make all these decisions, even if they're just small, um, it does it does tire you out. So what we looked at was um, a, a, a department of credit officers at a bank, a large bank, and they make these really tiring credit credit loan decisions all day long. What it, so what it involves is um, looking at uh, so-called restructuring proposals and deciding whether to approve them or not. So a restructuring proposal is when, when somebody who already has a loan from the bank, uh, when they have a hard time paying it back uh, in the way that was, was agreed. So normally you'd make a monthly payment, but if they for whatever reason cannot do that, then they might come to the bank and say, look, you know, I'm having a hard time, business is not going that well. Can we reduce the monthly payment or can we do something else? Can you do something to help me out? And then the bank or rather the credit officer will decide whether to accept that restructuring request or not. So, so it's a really interesting situation because these are people who already got a loan from the bank and who, who now, well, basically what, what, what's most relevant for the bank is the question now is, are they actually going to pay back the loan? So that's of course what banking is all about, right? You, you give out money, you charge interest, and then you collect back the money on and interest on top of that. Mm-hmm. But the risk for the bank is that, okay, you hand out money to someone, but then what if they don't give it back? Right. Mm. And basically, if somebody goes bankrupt and defaults on the loan, that's a huge loss for the bank. So, so of course, they don't want that, but they also they don't want to reduce the the um, the interest, or they don't want to ideally ideally the bank wants to stick with exactly the agreement they made, rather than making any concession, right? But at the same time, they also don't want the customer to default, so then they don't get anything back. So, okay, so, so these are really interesting decisions where these credit officers all day long, they process these, these applications and they're, they're a bunch of very objective criteria such as somebody's credit score or prior repayment history, those kinds of things. So, so that's fairly straightforward. There's a number of such indicators that in fact, they have computer programs for that algorithms and in fact, only, I mean, only the kind of more ambiguous cases are decided by people. But it, it's a difficult job, right? Because, well, literally a lot of money is riding on it. Uh, so it's a difficult job. So it is tiring. It is exhausting. So the question then is, would that lead to decision fatigue? So that was one question. And then the other, and this was 
this was the really cool thing and the novel thing in that paper uh, was that we also had, so, so not just, well, okay, we were able to look at decision fatigue. That's something that other people had done as well. Uh, but we were also able to look at the consequences of the decision fatigue, or basically the cost of, of those, the, the, qual the decision quality. So let me explain that. So because it was the bank that had customers already who had already received money, the most, one of the most important variables for the bank is do they actually pay back the money or not, uh, right, the entire loan. So then we had, basically we had an outcome measure that related to how good decision quality was as a function of the decision fatigue in the credit officers. Okay, so, so first of all, we found decision fatigue in the sense that uh, in the morning, the, the, the credit decisions were more generous. So these uh, restructuring approvals were more likely to be approved. Then there was a drop by noon, and then it went up again in the afternoon. And, and our interpretation is that once you've made these decisions all, all morning, and once lunchtime comes, and maybe you're also a bit hungry and fatigued, that's when when people became these credit officers became more, what shall I say, more stingy with handing out those credits, right? But then the question is, okay, so that would suggest decision fatigue. So, you know, the decisions have changed. But then, question is, well, is that is that actually a good thing or a bad thing? Is it is it better to to kind of um, well, to be generous to these applicants and say that, yeah, okay, you know what, we'll work with you and uh, make it easier for you to pay back the loan. Or is it better to just say, nope, we're going to stick with it. Again, because there is that dilemma for the bank, right? They, they want to collect the interest that was agreed and they want to basically get people to hold up their end of the bargain. But then they certainly don't want the other person to not pay anything at all because they go bankrupt. So, okay, so, all right, we find decision fatigue, but then we also find that in general, all else being equal, uh, a loan or rather a restructuring, credit structuring proposal that was approved was actually more likely to be paid back or rather the loan was more likely to be paid back. So in other words, if the credit officer says, yep, we're gonna work with you, we'll reduce your monthly payment, that's fine, no problem. That person was more likely to pay back the loan than someone who had, had it rejected. Okay, so now we know it's better when in doubt to, re to, to approve that proposal, that, that restructuring proposal. But we also know that by lunchtime, these this, these uh, these credit offices were more likely to reject rather than accept those those applications. So that means for the bank, it was better to be at the approval level of the morning rather than at lunchtime. Yeah. So okay, what would have happened if all the decisions had been made at the morning level, right? Because again. Approving was a good thing for the bank because it made it more likely for the person to pay back the loan. And then we can look at the, the whole range of 
um, of credit, you know, credit amount, loan amounts that the bank had given out, all these various features of the loans and so on, the applications, and we can then come up with kind of an average or a typical loan, and then kind of extrapolate, basically extrapolate what would have happened if, if all these applications have been processed at the level of, you know, let's say nine o'clock, nine to eleven o'clock in the morning, something like that. And we can then calculate that and we find that the bank could have made another half a million dollars in that one month that we looked at. So that's that's a long story to say that we can in that in that in that study, we can put a price tag on the cost of decision fatigue in that particular uh, financial context uh, in banking, basically, in, in the real world. And that's that's pretty cool, too. So these are actual, you know, actual decisions that have money riding on them. Hmm. Yeah, it's such a huge influence that this can then be applied to for several other aspects of life. Have you both thought about how decision fatigue or even um, the way that the banks work can then be applied yeah. to a bigger, larger? Well, you know what, whenever we talk to people in the finance industry, they're really, really shocked because psychology is all nice and interesting and fluffy and all of that, right? But especially the finance industry, I think it's really a place where the rational decision maker is still, you know, very much kind of the, what shall I say, the guiding principle. So the idea that yes, once money is involved, people, you know, are really rational and they do what needs to be done. But then this, this finding suggests that, well, not entirely, right? I mean, I should emphasize, it's not like these credit officers don't make good decisions. They do, but there were also big effects of all the regular predictors like um, credit scores, prior uh, payment history, all these things that are well known to, to play a role. So, so they clearly uh, uh, took those into account and they had a big effect. And the, the decision fatigue effect, in, relatively speaking, was much smaller, but still, right? I mean, in terms of practical significance for, for a bank, all that matters is the bottom line, and there it clearly had an effect. Uh, but, but yeah, I think in, in that industry, finance industry, there probably still, still is a very strong sense that, or rather, let's put it this way, a lack of a recognition of just how much psychological factors might might come in and so so it will be interesting you know to to educate people more widely or to, to get the word out to say that well you know it's not just psychology there's actually there's actually money involved and if your company is serious about these kinds of things there is money to be made um given what you know about decision fatigue do you think there's a way to optimize decision making so that we're reserving most of our energy and investment into the bigger more important decisions Yes. Well, you know what? In fact, I think this brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. What are the right work patterns or work-life balance, how to be productive and so on. So according to that, Tim Wilson was right on it to say that, okay, do the difficult task in the morning, writing or whatever it may be. And then, you know, uh, you do other things later. Because in the morning is, I think, typically is when people are still most alert. And that's when, when one can do the most difficult things. In fact, there's apparently a, a quote by 
by, I think it's, is it Mark Twain, something like, eat a frog. If you eat a frog in the morning, there's nothing else that will happen to you for the rest of the day. So basically, I don't know how he came up with a frog and eating a frog, but I guess it's just something that would be really disgusting and horrible to do. But but yeah, chances are nothing else will be worse than that. So so get the get the most difficult thing out of the way early in the morning. It's interesting how this could then be applied to people who may be more of like the night owls and seeing whether that's a true uh, in inner difference or if it's something that you just have to program yourself to then. I do see, you know what there is, I should I should actually qualify that there is a lot of evidence that circadian rhythms make a big difference. Right? Some people yes. really are night owls and it's hard to shift them and they they may try or they may, you know, they may have a really difficult time in the morning and so on. And it's just almost it's probably in a strong way a biological thing. So that may not be that easy, but but maybe it's, in fact, a better way of thinking about it, maybe to say, uh, to do the difficult things first thing after you wake up or, you know, whatever you're waking up. I mean, not so much tied to the time of the day, but the, the, the time in your, uh, in your work routine or life routine, right? If you get up at noon and that's your, well, then basically, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, that's your morning. So you can translate it to that. So basically, right. you know, just shortly after you wake up, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's really interesting. It would be cool to see a paper about that with circadian rhythms yes. and uh, I, decision I, uh, fatigue. I, I actually, I'm a firm believer in these kinds of things. And like, especially circadian rhythm or something. I, I guess it goes back to, to that notion that these biological processes or how the body feels, physical states, they're so powerful, right? When your body tells you, okay, you know what, you you must eat because I'm hungry and there's food in front of you. So right. you, you know, these these are things where literally the body's telling you, okay, if you don't do that, you'll die. You'll eventually die, which is true, right? If we don't if we don't eat, we'll die. If we don't sleep, we'll die. That's also true in, in extreme ways. So so these bodily states, these physical sensations are really, really powerful because that's what keeps us alive. And if your body tells you, you know what, you need to sleep and it's, I don't know, it may be eight o'clock PM. Well, that's the time to go to sleep for another person. If that's two o'clock AM and only then you get a sense you need to sleep well, then, you know, you have a different cycle, different circadian rhythm, but it's, it's just as, as strong as, as, you know, uh, as it might be for, for someone who's in a more, I guess, a conventional routine, daily routine. Uh, I mean, there are all these things one can think about, okay, how to be more productive, how to do the right thing, this and that. But I, I do want to emphasize, it's such a fun thing to be an academic. It's such an amazing thing to, to have, I mean, my kind of life, I, sometimes I can't believe it. It's just, I'm so fortunate. <laughs> um, as a student too, it it yeah, it's challenging but it's exciting at the same time. You you could you could study anything you want, right? You could right. pick a totally random question and go after it and throw everything you can think of at it and give it all your, your best shot and do all of that. I think that's amazing. I mean that we we have these opportunities and these these options and I would 
I would invite you to just enjoy it and just make the most out of it. Forget about, oh, I need to, I need to desperately come up with a research question how, and a good study. And I need, I'm already behind and I need to, you know, I need to start the data collection tomorrow because I should have done it yesterday. But to really <laughs> explore, explore the topics, find something you're passionate about. I think that's in a way the most exciting thing, but also the most difficult thing. And be conscious of that both. It, it's fun, but at the same time, it can be challenging and frustrating, but but it's such an opportunity to carve out uh, your space and your niche and just, you know, have a good time. Yeah, and just fall into it and then continue yes, exactly. <laughs> for as long right. as you can. Right. <laughs> and you know what, don't worry about all these things about competition and getting ahead. And I think, I think social comparison is probably one of the one of the worst things human beings have come up with or evolution has given us social comparison always comparing yourself to others competing with others all of that it's kind of it's in, it's inevitable but at the same time i think it's it's so counterproductive when it comes to you know doing your work whatever that work may be whether in academia or somewhere else if you're constantly looking over your shoulder how am i doing how are they doing Am I, you know, are they getting ahead? Am I falling behind? All of that, that can take up so much energy. Mm-hmm. That's not worth it. That's just not That's worth right. it. Do your thing. Do your thing. Do the best you can. And yep. don't worry about other people. Yep. Yep. Just worry about mm-hmm. yourself and your own happiness. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Got to preserve our focus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's right. But uh, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. And thank you so much for discussing your career and your research. And it's so fascinating. And we'll definitely be tagging tagging you on Twitter on this as well. So people can continue looking at the different research ideas that you put out. uh, Because it's very fascinating. So thank you. Well, thanks so much, Katrina. And you can really, really appreciate it. It was great fun. And yeah, again, you know, enjoy your time as a student. It's such a great place to be. Not easy necessarily, I'm not saying that, but, you know, give it your best shot. Uh, just, you know, do your thing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and if people are interested, we will also share the paper that Simona is talking about today, as well as her Twitter handle in the description. So feel free to check that out. Yep. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, both of you.